It's that time of year, isn't it? It's that time of year where everybody's using up all the Kleenex. Thank you so much for uh, asking me, Brother Justin, to come and preach. I count it an honor to stand in this pulpit. Counted an honor to be considered worthy of it. If you would, let's all turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Genesis, chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 16. Now I'm going to go ahead and apologize up front. We'll be doing a lot of scripture reading today, but that's all right. You'd rather hear God's word than mine anyway. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, and the Lord says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. If you would, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time that you've given us to spend together. I pray that you would give me the words to speak. I pray that you would give all of us the the ears to hear and the hearts to receive. I pray that everything we do as a church and as individuals representing this church, Father, that it would be to your glory and honor. I pray that each and every one of us would have a zeal for your word. And Father, most of all, I pray that you would continue to be with us as we're in search of a pastor. In all that we do, Father, we lift it up to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Here we have... The very first law that was given to man. The very first. The very first commandment that God had ever given to humankind. Now, if you would, let's turn to chapter 3 and verse 6. Chapter 3 and verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Here we see the very first law of God broken. The account of the first offense that was ever against the Lord God. Now, everyone here has been taught about the federal headship of of Adam, and so I'm not going to go into that discussion. Adam was the federal headship of all, and therefore in Adam we all sinned as well. I've heard several men make a statement, a silly statement, that says, you know, had I been Adam, I would have done better. Just based on your words, you would have done worse. You would have done a lot worse. No better, at least. But here we see in the account of the first offense of the commandment, we see that man is weak and he is unable to fulfill the law of God. The law that God has given his people. We know that man is weak. And we know that the law is perfect. We read in the word of God, the word of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. For those who are taking notes, that's Psalms 19, 7 and 8. For those of you who are taking notes. It's been stated... Several times in my life that I've heard, it's been stated that man as a whole, if given the choice, would overall choose to do the right thing, would overall choose to be good. That man somehow has a pure heart and that we just need to trust and understand that people inherently 
are good. People are inherently good. Good, you say. We have only to look at our past to realize that we're not good. You can look at men of the past and see that we're not good at all. We murder, we strife, we push people around to get what we want. We think of men like Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Attila the Hun. You think of anyone who's been in charge of Russia ever. How do you think they got to the top? There was only one way they could get there. They had to be the strongest, most powerful, and most influential person to get to the top. That is what humankind is. Really, all you have to do is take two children who don't even know how to speak. You put these two children in one room, drop one toy in there, and you'll see exactly what man is like. You'll know exactly what happens. There's going to be pushing. There's going to be hitting. There's going to be fighting. There's going to be a lot of crying. But inevitably, the one who's stronger is going to be the one that ends up with a toy. It always tends to be the strongest one that gets what they want. Because they can hold over anyone else the absolute sway because they're stronger. But Scripture teaches us something different than man being inherently good, does it not? Turn with me, if you would, to Psalms 53. We'll go over a few of them. Psalms 53, if you would. Starting in verse 2. Well, let's start in verse 1 to get a context because he is talking about a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they. And have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them is gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. In the book of Romans chapter 3. Book of Romans chapter 3. Starting in verse 9. I want to read a few scriptures here. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher or a grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. Back in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Starting in verse 5. We'll read, we'll read just verse 5. Genesis chapter 6. 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
Now, this is back in the days of Noah. Do you think we've gotten any better? You think man's gotten any better? As a matter of fact, I know we've gotten probably as bad because it does say that in, you know, Jesus himself said, as in the days of Noah, so it's going to come again, that as bad as it was then, it will be as bad as it was then, that day, which, by the way, is today. Today, we're living in the end times. Ever since Christ left us, we've been in the end times. It's been building up and building up. We're not to that prophetical end, but we've been living in the end times. And so just as bad as it was then, evil in his heart continually. You see, man does not contain the ability to be good in any form. We do not have this propensity to do the right thing always. Now, I know a lot of good men. But do you think they do right always? I mean, I don't think so. Because I I consider myself a, a fairly good man, and I know I don't do right always. I know for a fact that I don't. Because I'm a sinner saved by grace. Even if the perfect thing that God would have us to do is what He wants us to do, doesn't mean that we have the ability to do it. We cannot do it. He even said later, you cannot come to me. You remember John, th- uh, John chapter 6, I believe it is, or 7. You cannot come to me. You do not possess the ability to come. That's what can means. You can. You can do it. That's why when you were raised in school, your teacher would look at it and go, I don't know. Can you? Because it's may I, when you're asking for permission, the can gives the ability, I don't know, can you do it? Are you able to? Jesus says you cannot Come to me. We do not have it in us to do this. Exodus chapter 20, if you would. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle nor thy thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them is and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God give thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, 
nor his ass, nor anything that is in thy neighbor, that is thy neighbor's. Here we have the commandments that's given to the people of God. These were to be the set of commands that were to govern the lives of God's people. This was to be the guide to living a good life and being close to the Lord God. Or was it? When you read these things that God wrote to his people, what comes to your mind? There are three different categories that come to my mind when I read the commandments. and We have them posted here on this side. I know the people who are watching online probably can't see that far over. But we have the commandments posted here. And for a good reason. Because as Christians, we love the law. The law is perfect. The law is perfect concerning the soul. Remember that. God's word, his law is perfect. We're not. But God's law is perfect. Three things, three different types of people come to mind when I read these commandments. The first type is the Pharisee or what I like to call the modernistic way of thinking. It says, I got this. I know that I'm living my life as a pattern to these commands I know what I'm, I'm doing, what these commands tell me to do. I am righteous and I have the ability to be the person that God wants me to be simply by following these rules. Now that was a Pharisee of the time. Back when Christ was alive, it was a, they were called Pharisees. They felt they were living the perfect life because they were keeping every law that man had ever made concerning these ten. And every law that was around it and they felt, I've got this and I am perfect and can do this. I also attune that to our modern uh, name it and claim it and the, the modern believe, easy believism. And the reason I say that is because if you'll simply do this, you will get this. Now there's a lot of places in God's, word, in God's word where that promise is true. If you will follow my commandments, I will bless your nation. If you do this, I will give you that. There are a lot of times where that is made. Till you get to the New Testament, then it all gets bottled up. Then there is no more easy believe. All you have to do is believe. You have to believe and trust in the Lord, not believe and trust in these commands. Then there's a second type of person that I think about. Someone who says, well, how could I ever do this? This is, this is not a, there's not a thing in this passage of Scripture that I can do. In fact, everything that I normally do is completely opposite of everything the Scripture says. Completely different. And I attend this to the lost person. Because a lot of times what they'll do is they'll say, Well, you know, I can't do that, so why should I worry about it? If I can't follow the laws of God, if He's going to hold me to this standard that I can't even attain, why would I even do it? We will not have this God to rule over us. Is what they say. If he's going to hold me accountable to this, knowing I can't do it, well, who does he think he is? Who art thou, old man? You better be careful. You just cross, there's a line in the sand. You can't cross that line. God himself is on the other side of that line, and if you try to cross over that line, you've gone past hallowed ground. You're no longer on the hallowed ground. That was up to the line. Past that line is God's territory. That's why Paul says, who art thou, old man, to speak against God? But then there's a third group of people that I think about, and here's what's on their mind. Thank God that Christ came and did this on my behalf. Amen. 
thank God that I'm not held to each and every one of these standards as if I could even keep them at all. Thank you, Lord, for coming and taking care of this for me. And that should be what is in the heart and mind of a child of God. I attribute that to the saved. I attribute that to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But first off, think about the first thing they think of. Thank you, Lord. A good Christian is a thankful Christian. You can't prove otherwise. Because <laughs> what have we got to boast of ourselves? Is there anything we can boast that we did? We provided the sinner. JC said that a few times. <laughs> provided the sinner. It's about all I could do. So if the purpose of the law was not to have us live this wholesome, wonderful life with our God, then what was the purpose? Why is the law even there? We know that the law is good. I'm not ever going to denounce that the law is perfect. It is perfect and righteous. And the, the word of God is just as if it is God. And as a matter of fact, it says the word was with God. He is God. He is Logos. He is the word. But if it wasn't here for us to follow and live, then what was the purpose? Why does it exist? We're going to go to the book of Romans because Paul talks about this. Romans chapter 8, if you would please. Romans chapter 8, Paul himself teaching this very truth. I've got a couple of them that he taught here, but in Romans, we're going to start in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. Paul says that for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, and that's our flesh, not Christ's flesh, but our flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not as sinful flesh, but in the likeness of, and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And if you would, in Galatians chapter 3, a couple of books over, Galatians chapter 3. I found this one this morning as we were singing. I've wrote it in because I didn't actually have it in my notes, but Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, so that means that every single person on the face of this earth, man, woman, child, creature, beast, or otherwise, scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ, notice of Jesus Christ, might be given to them that believe. It's Christ's faith. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. Shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's properly rendered in Jesus Christ because our faith in Him is the security that we now know because we have a faith in something that we can't see, that we can't touch, that we can't feel, yet we still believe it. We still have faith in it. That gives us the faith to know that His faith, His obedience to the cross is what saves and keeps us. See, that you've got to put the ofs and the ends in the right place. It can't all be in Christ. Because if it were all in Christ, then it wouldn't be of Christ, would it? 
So it can't all be in Christ because my faith has no merit whatsoever. But Christ's faith, his faith means something, doesn't it? So I hear a lot of people say that my faith is in my faith and that's wrong. Your faith should be in his faith. It's His faith. It's what He did on the cross. It's His obedience. He lived every one of those laws perfect. He fulfilled every one of these scriptures perfectly. He went to the cross and He died perfectly. As the scripture said, for me. I don't know about the rest of you. But I can't attain to that. But I know that me, I, have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, I have to believe that His faith is for me. And I pray it's for you. Let's move over to... So we see that the law was never out, never put out here for us to follow. It was simply put out here so that we can understand that we could not follow it and then turn our eyes and our affection to the one that was able to and did do it on our behalf. Our precious Lord Jesus Christ. If you would turn to John chapter 13. What I'm doing is I'm going over all of the commandments that I believe were given in the Scripture. In the book of John, chapter 13, in verse 34, Jesus himself talking says, A new commandment I give unto you. Now a lot of people say, well this isn't really a new commandment. Well then why did Jesus call it a new commandment? If it's not really a new commandment, then Jesus misspoke here, did he not? And our Jesus can't misspoke, but he says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that ye also love one another. So the way I loved you, you guys need to love each other as I love you. And I don't know about, there's a lot of places in scripture that talk about a lot of things. But the love of the brethren is one of those, one of the very few things that multiple uh, of the disciples talked about being the litmus test of whether you're truly a believer or not, is the love of the brethren. Because let's be honest, guys, we're kind of hard to love. (laughs) We're not easy to get along with. When we've got a doctrine that we know it's right, we're going to follow it. When we've got something that we know it's the truth, we're going to hold on to it. And there is nothing out in that world that is going to make us let go of it. And there is nothing inside this church that's going to make us let go of it either until someone shows you that you're wrong if you're wrong. Right? We're kind of hard to get along with. We're a little stubborn. We're a little stiff-necked. You know, I come from North Texas. My wife calls it Southern Oklahoma. But I come from, I come from North Texas and... There's some mules out there that are not as stubborn as some of us boys down there in Texas. I'm pretty sure it's the same way up here in Oklahoma. We're stiff-necked people. I mean, we're just, it's, hard for, it's hard to be governed. It's hard for someone to, to take what we feel is rightfully ours. Something that I learned, that I understand, something I know. It's really kind of hard to let that go if you're wrong until it's proven to you in Scripture that it's wrong. So I've been proven wrong many a time. And I'm okay with that. Because there shouldn't be a single Christian on the face of this planet that's not willing to learn. That's not willing to have a teachable spirit. You can never be right about everything. There's way too much in this 
book from one page to, from the first page to the last to think that you have a complete and comprehensive full understanding and knowledge of the whole word of God. That's pretty boastful. Charles Spurgeon had a sermon titled Christ's New Commandment and he preached it on April 4th, 1875. In his sermon, he told a story about an archbishop by the name of Usher and a Presbyterian minister by the name of Mr. Rutherford. Spurgeon stated in that sermon, he said, and I quote, The archbishop had heard of the wondrous power of Rutherford's devotion and of the singular beauty of the arrangement of his household. And he wished to witness it himself, but he could not tell how to do so until it occurred to him that he might disguise himself as a poor traveler. Accordingly, at nightfall, he knocked at the door of Mr. Rutherford's house and was received by Mrs. Rutherford. He asked if he could find lodgings there for the night, which she answered yes, for they entertained strangers. She placed him in the kitchen and gave him something to eat. It was part of her regular family discipline on Saturday evening to catechize the children and the servants, and, of course, the poor man in the kitchen. He came along with them. Mrs. Rutherford put to all of them some questions concerning the commandments. And to this poor man, she put this question, How many commandments are there? And he answered, Eleven. She said, Ah! Ah! She said, What a sad thing that a man of your age, whose hair is sprinkled with gray, could not even know how many commandments there are. For there is not a child above six years old in our parish who does not know that. The poor man said nothing in reply, but he ate his oatmeal and porridge and he went to bed. Later that evening, he rose and he listened to Rutherford's midnight prayer. Mr. Rutherford was known to be a really pious and prayerful man. And he was charmed with this prayer. And he made himself known to Mr. Rutherford and he borrowed a better coat from him and he preached that Sunday morning and surprised Mrs. Rutherford by taking as his text... A new commandment I give unto you, and by commencing with the observation that this might very, very be very properly be called the eleventh commandment. That was his whole sermon about it being properly called the eleventh commandment, because it was a commandment given by Christ. Like I said, be careful what you think you know, because you might find out in a rather abrupt way that you don't know what you think you know. That's why it's good to study. That's why it's good to learn. That's why it's good to listen to other men. That's why it's good to listen to other sermons. We didn't get a chance to make it to the, uh, to the meetings this weekend, but you know, I know that a, a wonderful blessing was held by all. So here we have the 11th commandment that's given to, uh, given to us by God, or the 12th, if you want to consider the Garden of Eden as the really very first commandment. Although a lot of people tend to discard that one, however, because that one was given and then ultimately unable to be fulfilled in all of man. And so that's why the other commandments were to be the first and moving forward of the new covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Right? That was the Adam co- that was the covenant with Adam. And when Adam passed away, then the Mosaic covenant, that was the Ten Commandments. And now we have this Twelfth Commandment that was given to us in the New Testament. But... We don't think of those, however, to love one another as he loved us. Just how much does he love us? 
contemplate that for a few minutes in Scripture. Don't even have to tell you to turn to this one. I can just quote it and you're going to know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is a scripture about how much the Father loved his people. God the Father loved his people so much that he gave his only begotten Son to be a propitiation for their sins. Can you imagine giving away your child for any reason, your, your, your only child, to someone else for any reason whatsoever? You know, Abraham was pretty faithful in that, but I'm not sure that any of us could really understand how much God loves us that he would send his son to die. That's why I don't really understand these idols in the Old Testament when they talk about Molech and, and, and Baal and how they were taking their children and they were putting them in fire. They're children. They're flesh and blood. They would burn these children for an idol. Not even for God. I mean, at least Abraham was told to do so. He was told to take Isaac up there. At least he, would, he did. He was just doing what he was told by God and God provided a sacrifice. These guys, they're just, because they're blindly following something they don't understand? Just never understood that. Romans 5.8 says, But God commanded his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm glad he didn't say you. Because that really does make it very specific. Us means there's a lot more than just me. Us means there's a lot more than just one person. But I guess you really could use the, the you. You could make it really personal. Here's that wonderful phrase that we all love to hear. But God. But God. We love to hear that phrase. It's scattered throughout all of our scriptures. Scattered throughout everywhere. And it is a wonderful and precious phrase. And it rings beautifully in our ears. But God showed us love in that he sent his son to die for us. Even though we do not deserve it. Or have any rights to the things of the Lord. He didn't pay attention to that. Thank God. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, it says, But God, here it is again, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus, I love that word, but God, rich in mercy indeed. We can look at the scriptures that we looked at before to understand how much we're not worthy of his love. How much we do not deserve the love of a righteous, holy, wonderful, perfect God. But there are some others, Romans 2, 8 through 9. But unto them that are contentious, those that don't believe in God, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. So we see that all sorts of tribulation and all sorts of anguish are going to come 
They're in store for those that do not obey the truth. Death and hell wait for them. Death and hell wait for them. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's all over the, the Gospels. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In 1 Corinthians, knowing you not that the unrighteous shall uh, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. He reiterates this exact same verbiage when he sends it to the Galatians in five, chapter five, verse nineteen through twenty-one. He says, "Now the words, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these: adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings." And such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So those that follow after the flesh shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They shall forever perish in a place called hell. And eventually at the end of days, when Christ returns, they will forever perish in a lake of fire. There they shall be tormented for all of eternity. In the first Corinthians passage that we spoke about, in the very next passage in verse 11, Paul goes on to state, and such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, set apart, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, but God. But God. We were by nature the children of life. We were wrath. We acted no different than they do. Brother Bryant talked last week, and he made a, one single statement that stuck out to me more than any other. He says, when we were lost, you could set us right next to a child of wrath and couldn't tell the difference. And couldn't tell the difference. There's a lot of truth in that. A lot more than any of us want to agree, agree with, I promise you. But for those <clears throat> who think that people inherently are just good, that there's something in us that just makes us want to be compassionate and loving one toward another, <coughs> please keep these scriptures in your mind. And remember that man of his own will will choose to be the worst of the worst. He will choose to be the base of the base. He will choose to be the most terrible person that he can be. In us is no good whatsoever. None. But God. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that you've given us to spend together. I pray, Father, that your words would have a resonation on our hearts. I pray, Father, that...